Assalamualaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope and would just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Today's guest is Carly Spina. I wanted to have her on the show. Of course, she's written this book, and we're going to get into it. But I was drawn to her because of these TikTok videos that pop up. And she makes these little short videos. And I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. And so I wanted to have her on uh, because I knew she would be have a great personality, a great interview, very positive and wanted to, again, to talk about her book and maybe get into her writing process and why she wrote the book uh, that she wrote. So I'm always interested because so many educators are out there and then everyone, you know, you sit back and, and they have their lane that they occupy and what they present at conferences about. And, and, and it's interesting when everyone is doing this and then at the same time weaving tech to it so to see well oh well, how does all of this weave in together and so i want to have ron again uh, to share those experiences and for those of you who have written a book uh learn from her uh, how she is marketing and branding uh, herself and getting the sales the coin as we say make the impact in any come and for those who are thinking about writing a book hear about what's going on and maybe you too will write that book it's I've started and let's just say it's been months and I have not written a paragraph. Okay, so for those who be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, Spotify, and Audible, will you please introduce yourself, Carly? Yes. So my name is Carly Spina. Um, I am uh, currently serving as an education specialist with the Illinois Resource Center. So we're a nonprofit, but our whole jam is serving and supporting multilingual students and families and programming. But um, this has always been a big passion of mine. I was an EL or English learner teacher for many years. We served um, I think over at the time, I think it was about 65 languages were present in my school. And then by the time I left my district, I think we were up to 86 or something like that. Um, I was also a dual language uh, classroom teacher uh, for third grade. And that was just like magical. So magical. <laughs> um, I was also a uh, multilingual instructional coach for eight schools from pre-K through eighth grade in the Chicagoland area. So that was a whole lot of fun. And I learned so much. Um, but yes, now I, um, I have my book. Um, I am in schools and districts across Illinois and beyond. And um, I'm really just very passionate about equipping educators with tools that they need to feel like they can <laughs> do powerful things for the students and families that they serve. So thank you so much for having me today. I'm so excited. You're welcome. You're welcome. So I'm always curious as to how people got to where they are. What did you think you'd be doing when you were growing up and what drew you to the field of education? So honestly, I like I'm one of those people who always said, like, when I grow up, I'm going to be a teacher. But the other things that I wanted to be, I really, really wanted to be a backup dancer for Paula Abdul. <laughs> like I thought like that was going to be it. Like <laughs> I really needed to work towards that. So um, 
but yeah, we were always just kind of dancing around on the block that I grew up on. A lot of the kids in the neighborhood, we all just, we would make up dances all summer long. Um, but my mom was a youth pastor for many years in our community, um, on the North side of Chicago. And so I think I saw her, um, serving, you know, kids, um, and maybe doing a little bit of disrupting where she was, uh, because sometimes she would get like, I don't know, a little bit in trouble for, um, serving kids who were not part of the congregation. Um, and so as like, as a young girl watching my mom serve as a female in church leadership, I think that really inspired me. Um, but watching and hearing the stories of the kids that she was supporting over the years, I think that also inspired me. So I think, um, education was kind of my path always. Uh, and so, when I, you know, started to do, you know, high school and look at colleges and things like that, I was like, I need an education program. So it was kind of like, kind of a no brainer for me, but now it's cool because in education, like, I think no matter what we wanted to do when we were kids in education, we can incorporate all of those things. Like I can totally, if I'm in a classroom, I can totally bust out some dance moves and it would be totally appropriate and fine. <laughs> but like, if I'm an engineer, it might not fit. <laughs> so I can invite all of those passions I used to have into what I do every day, which is so cool. No other job can do that. <laughs> That's all right. So before we get into your book, I'm interested in hearing about your attraction to EL because, you know, everyone who goes into education, you know, you, you get to that point to where you have to sort of decide, hey, am I going to go elementary? Am I going to go secondary? And if I go secondary, what what is my path going to be? And, you know, for some people, I guess that they love math, you know, it might be an easy choice for them or they love, you know, English and books. That may be a, a choice. But for others, it could be I don't know. I just sort of fell into this because I got hired and they put me somewhere. Uh, what drew you to EL education? Where did that passion come from? So when I grew up, like I grew up in a monolingual household, we did not have any other languages aside from English, but everyone on my block, I feel like had an additional language. All of my friends had other languages. Um, and I, I like had friends from all over the world. And I thought that was so cool. Um, but so it's interesting growing up in Chicago because it is very linguistically rich but it's also historically very like segregated by neighborhood. Um, and again, that's like very, um, I don't think it was, you know, intentionally designed that way, but it, it, it grew from like folks coming from all over the world and trying to stay connected to who they are, to their identity, to their culture, and also receive support, right? Like support finding work, support finding housing, all of these different things. And so now there's a lot of like evidence of that still today, right? And, and I think many cities are, are very similar in that way. But um, so growing up, I think my, my parents easily, like early, they taught me and my two sisters about privilege uh, and all the kinds of privileges that we had um, from, from everything. And so we talked a lot about language privilege um, and, uh, using our positions to support others in our community, to support our neighbors, support our friends, support our teammates. Um, so when I got to high school, I was able to take an additional language 
like out of, again, out of privilege, not out of a necessity to survive or anything like that, not out of a necessity to navigate anything. It was out of a privilege. Um, so I learned Spanish and I was super excited about it because most of my friends spoke Spanish. So I was like, all right, this is good. <laughs> um, and then when I started to do like my student teaching, when I got to college, um, I really became hyper aware of inequities in education, but really my, my heart, um, really filled with passion about serving multilingual students because I saw how, number one, how uh, ill-equipped many teachers felt. They're like, well, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know what to do. And so many times, like you would see a student who was brand new to the community, to the country, and they'd be like, I think I'm just going to stick them on this computer, or I think I'm just going to have them color because they didn't know what to do. Um, and it just broke my heart. And sometimes I was able to use my additional language to support. Like, if, again, if we shared the Spanish language, great, I could I could hop in there. But if the student was uh, was a Mongolian speaker, I didn't have that language. And so I had to really get like, OK, I've, I've got to equip myself as an educator hopping into this. And so um, I was like, I need my endorsement. And my dad really pushed me um, because all of the courses were on Saturdays and I didn't want to do Saturday courses, but he really pushed me. He's like, no, Carly, you need to do this. Um, think of all these kids, you know? Um, and so I did, I got my endorsement and then right out of college, I hopped in as an EL teacher and I never looked back. <laughs> wow. um, yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. So let's jump into your book. Wow. Okay. So. In the, you know, people who are listening to this podcast, hopefully by now you have understood that this is a business podcast for educators. It is all about educators monetizing their talents, right? So some people are writing books, they're offering courses, masterminds, they're coaching, they're speaking and presenting, etc. When you decided, you know, let me take this back. What were you feeling? Right. What were you feeling to said, hey, I'm going to write a book. And how did you know that you were an author? Like, you know, a lot of people sing in the shower, but they're not, you know, going to put on a concert. Right. How did you know that you had what it takes to actually be an author? Right. And to be able to write your book moving beyond for multilingual learners. So I think a few things kind of helped me get to that point. I think um, as an EL teacher, there were many times where I felt like um, like I was just on an island, like for several years, I was the only EL teacher. I was the only Spanish speaking staff member, uh, in the school that I served. And so I really felt isolated a lot of times. And I think that feeling of being like you're on an island, um, I think it left me feeling a little broken sometimes and, but it also made me realize, you know what, there's a lot of other people like me in my, you know, in that same situation. Maybe it's the art teacher in my school or the art teacher down the road. Maybe we have very different roles in the school, but we kind of have that same, <laughs> that same feeling. Um, and so I think there were, there were many times where I just felt like I just need to connect with somebody. I just need to like have someone to relate to. Um, so I think that was one of the pieces that made me feel like, okay, I, I gotta sit down and write because I want other people to, to feel connected to. Um, but there was also like different moments, like the hardships that 
happened in my journey, either to me personally or professionally. Um, the stories of my students that I, I don't about at all in my book because those are their stories, not mine. Um, but I think like holding on to those little pieces over time, I was like, you know what, this story might help somebody feel supported, or this story might spark an idea for somebody else. Um, or somebody might be able to read this and teach me something here, you know? Um, and so like anytime I was really struggling with something, if I was like, if I got home from like, let's say a board meeting and somebody in a certain role, like shut me down and said, Carly, you're just supposed to be this teacher. You're not supposed to worry about food insecurity, stay in your lane. Um, so if that happened, I would, you know, come home and cry to my husband. I would go home and, you know, call my mom and dad and be like, what is going on? Like, I can't, <laughs> this, uh, this fight feels too big sometimes. Um, and the people who are against me and I feel like they're against my students, I feel like sometimes they're too big for me to take on by myself. And my mom's like, you just got to fuel this. You need to write, you know, write this down. You need to write down this experience because other people are, are facing these same battles and maybe their battles are much, much bigger, but you, you have to capture this. And so, um, there were a lot of education authors that I had read and followed online. And I really think that watching them grow and watching them do it and watching them speak about their passions, I think that really helped me and fueled me of like, you know what, I, I do have something to say. And like, <laughs> I can't let these, these, you know, isolated voices in, in the school or in the district or in the community silence me. I can't give them that power. I, I need to just get, a, get this all down. And so I, I was at a conference. I was at the Teach Better 2019 conference in Ohio. And I remember listening to Adam Welcome and he wrote books like Kids Deserve It and Teachers Deserve It and all kinds of books. But I remember him saying like, if you want to do something, just start, just do it. Just, just do whatever is on your heart. And I remember going back home and feeling like my heart was on fire. And I sat down in my office when I got back to work and I told my, my coworker, Jeanette, I was like, I, I need to write a book. I'm, I want to write a book. And she goes, then write it. And I was like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> like, she's like, yeah, just write the book, start writing. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. And so I did, I started to write and, you know, sometimes it was just like a blog, a blog post. And so I'd get that all done and I'd feel like, okay. And sometimes I would share it online and sometimes I wouldn't because I was scared or I was like, no, it's not ready. It's not ready to see the world yet. Uh, but then after a while, I just kind of collected all these thoughts and ideas. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to start taking the show on the road and see what kind of feedback I get. So I contacted different publishers and I got a few no's, but then I got a yes. And I was like, that's all I need. I need one. Yes. And someone who believed in me and said, like, this is something that, you know, that educators need. And so that's kind of how how it all happened. Mm. So now I'm going to ask you this, uh, because I personally feel a little different uh, because, you know, I have a documentary. I don't my I don't yet have a book that's out how did you feel when you got the box and the and your books were there, right? Or you go to a bookstore and you're like, look at her on the shelf. What was what, what that feeling like? When I got my book and held it in my hands, like I, I was like shaking 
I was shaking. I was like, this feels like I'm in a dream and I'm going to wake up <laughs> like, and this will all just be like, oh, that was a nice, a nice dream. Uh, but I, I was, I remember shaking and just staring at it. Like, I cannot believe this is, this is a book. This is something I created. This is something that came from my heart and like all the kind of, uh, the steps of, you know, the editing and the reorganizing chapters and shifting stuff around and, you know, removing pieces, like kind of copying and pasting all of those different things. And then you have it in your hands. It's, it was the coolest thing. And I think the coolest part for me was being able to show my own children, my son and my daughter, like, and I had a dedication to them in the book. And so I was able to show them. And I think that was so cool. And sometimes I'll still overhear my daughter say like, did you know my mom's an author? And that like, it just, it wrecks me every time. I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's wild. That is that is all right. That's all right. So for those of us who are connected, uh, so we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, et cetera. And then we go to, how do you bring innovation, creativity and innovation within the EL classroom and how are you navigating this digital world? So I have to say like when, like, as I think about this question, a whole lot of different things come to mind. I remember like, I don't know, maybe even 10 years ago, like, you know, when I first started teaching, I would ask students like, Oh, you know, what do you, what do you dream for yourself? Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I had, you know, kids when, the, when they were, you know, the younger kids, they would say like, I want to be the president. I want to be a professional uh, soccer player. I want to be a mechanic. I want to be an author. I want to be a like all of these things. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like hyping them up like crazy. Like, yes, you are going to do all these things. You're going to be all these things. But then I would have like a handful of kids who would say, Mrs. Fina, I'm going to be a YouTuber. And you know, it's so embarrassing. It's so cringy because when they used to say this to me 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would say, that's not a real job. And I kept saying it and like, it like hurts my heart to like say it out loud because I'm like, oh, Carly, honey. <laughs> um, but I finally had a colleague say to me, you know, Carly, why are you telling kids that that's not a real job? And I'm like, well, pshaw, that's not, it's not a, you can't make money doing YouTube. And they're like, yeah, you YouTubers make a whole lot more than us teachers. And I'm like, yeah, but it's like, it's so hard to make money off of YouTube. And they're like, yeah, but like, it's also hard to be a professional soccer player, but you're hyping them up for that. Like, why, you know, what, what are you doing? So I was like, oh, oh, that, you know, that got me. <laughs> I was like, I gotta, I gotta unpack this a little bit. Um, and it's so funny because now I'm at the whole other end of the spectrum. Like when kids say, hey, Mrs. Fina, I want to, I want to grow up and be a YouTuber. I'm like, yes, <laughs> number one, you don't have to wait, like do it now. Like, <laughs> what do you, I, like I, my, my whole conversation now is so different. Now I'm like, what are you passionate about? What problems in this world are you going to solve? Who is your target audience? Like, how are you going to inspire people? Like, what, what are you going to share? How are you mm. going to share your heart with, with the world? Um, and so I think like looking at all the ways that social media has changed the way that we can language with each other. Like I use each of my platforms very, very differently. I use my, um, my Twitter account for all professional stuff. Every now and then I'll post like a dog picture or something, but it's all professional stuff. My Facebook is very like 
friends and family. My Instagram is like pure fluff and fashion and bright colors and like cute drinks and stuff. (laughs) Um, But I use all of these different platforms for a variety of purposes and audiences. And when I think about kids and they're growing up in this digital age, I want every student to feel empowered to be like powerful communicators. Like I didn't become an EL teacher because I love verbs, right? Like um, I want students to be able to communicate across, you know, different platforms and across different genres and for different audiences. The way I talk to my grandpa is very different than the way I talk to my husband. And if I ever got to meet the first lady, it would be very different than the way I talk to her. So I, you know, all of these different kind of switches we make in our language choices. Like I want kids to feel empowered by that. I want them to feel like they are equipped to navigate any, you know, from the boardroom to the you know, to the alley working on cars, like everywhere. I want, I want students to feel that, um, that they can, they can exist and language in all of these uh, places and spaces. And so um, when I think about innovation, I think about um, kind of in, inviting in all of those platforms, but really like, uh, I used to say like, I need to give kids a voice. And then people have said to me, no, Carly, they already have a voice. <laughs> you're not giving them a voice. You're passing them the mic. You're amplifying their voice. You're giving them that that opportunity to shine. So um, when they when they didn't go to school, right? Most ed programs, even now, don't teach you in the undergraduate level how to deal with EL students, right? And so you're teaching, And you're told that, oh, you have 10 students on your roster of various levels, right? Some are like, hey, I've been in the country (laughs) three weeks or two days, or I've been here a couple of years. How do they do that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's, I love this question because I think you, you hit it on the nail. Like it's, um, educators are not equipped because our programs, the way that we do undergrad and graduate programs to, you know, to equip teachers, we have very little coursework that is designed to support linguistically rich students. Um, and it's, it's a huge, it's a huge issue <laughs> with a lot of our, our, our pre-service programs. Um, and so now, like, again, like you said, the teachers now hop into this classroom, they get the class rosters and they're like, I, I, where do I even start? Um, and I've seen it, I've seen, you know, a lot of different examples over the years, but I think the, the one thing that I always like, <gasps> is like, you know, when, when teachers don't feel equipped they abdicate responsibility. Mm. And that is like the, the big red flag. Like we, we don't, we can't let that happen. We can't let that happen. So I, I would say a few different things. I, I want to encourage every educator, no matter what your role is, I want to tell you right now, you are equipped. You are an expert at your craft. You can acquire and learn more tools and strategies for your tool belt to serve our our multilingual students that will also benefit everybody. But like the resources are out there. I want, I want folks to feel like you can get that help. (laughs) Like go and see your EL specialist in your building. And if you don't feel confident or uh, ready to have that conversation, go online and, and like research and like, there's a whole lot of good stuff out there. But I think the biggest thing for me is, how schools in the U.S. have historically positioned multilingual students. Um, I still always hear the word 
the, the phrase language barrier. And I want to like, I want to kind of take that and, and beat that up a little bit. Like I want to unpack that a little bit because languages are not barriers. They are blessings. And if we can reposition our students as like, you are not, there's no like, we don't need to remediate, right? Uh, students who are acquiring an additional language, we need to we need to scaffold, we need to support. And we could do that in a lot of ways that are not like, I'm gonna just simplify this. I'm just gonna water this down. I'm just gonna make this a little bit easier. It's not about that. It's about making you know, content more comprehensible uh, for, for our students. So um, yeah, I think probably the biggest thing is repositioning our students. Like they're linguistically gifted, they're linguistically rich, they're linguistically, linguistically creative. They're not, <laughs> they don't need remediation. They are already powerful. Um, and yeah, they have amazing skills. So I think that's probably the biggest thing. That's all right. I just, I just, I just want to ask you because, you know, Hey, it's, it's different when, and, you know, they look at it and it's like, Oh, okay. Cause you know, they have their curriculum that they have to teach and the pacing guide, Oh, can we please do away with the pacing guys, people? But you got the pacing guy, and it's like, okay, I gotta, I gotta hit all these standards, like boom, 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 and you're trying to get everybody up to grade level and as much growth as possible, right? And there's a lot of things going on, and when you have those students who may come in and barely speak any English at all, like what do you do then, right? Mm -hmm. how, you know, it, sometimes like, how do you even communicate, uh, open a book? Yeah, or, yeah. You know, or, or what have you. And so I, I, I was just wondering, like, uh, what happens then? <laughs> like, how do, yes. they, how, how do yeah. they connect with their kids? How do they teach their kids? How do they bring all of the deliciousness yes. that they're doing in their classroom to this particular population of students yes so i would say like a few different things like we we have so many cool tech tools at our fingertips we can use different apps like whatsapp or uh duolingo or even remind and we can have like almost instantaneous like in the moment on the spot translation between teacher and student and that's so cool and so powerful um we can also start to kind of leverage our students heritage languages in the classroom and say like there are going to be moments like like if you have uh you know if you're going to have a group discussion or partner discussions you're going to have students do a turn and talk and if you have students who share a heritage language language, invite that into the space. Um, sometimes teachers are like, oh no, but I don't know if they're on task. Don't worry about it. If you are showing your kids that you trust them, that builds such a powerful connection that students feel that their language identities are being affirmed in the space, that's going to go above and beyond anything else. So like, you know, go ahead and turn and talk about the prompt on the board. Uh, feel free to do this in English or Mongolian or, or French or whatever. Um, and then we're going to come back and have a conversation. So leverage that because when we, when we invite the, the heritage language in, it actually elevates both languages. <laughs> uh, it helps, you know, spark a lot more uh, dialogue, uh, ideas, all these different things. Um, and I'd also say uh, to teachers to in, um, incorporate as many language domains as you can into your block of time. So maybe you have a 60 minute biology, you know, uh, a block. Um, 
see all of the ways that you can incorporate reading, writing, listening, and speaking. Now, that doesn't mean you have to divide up your 60-minute block into four equal spots. That doesn't make sense. That's not how language works either. But make sure that you're incorporating, like you're giving kids time to hit an opportunity for reading about that content. And again, maybe it's a level text or an annotated text, or maybe it's like an an audible text. That's cool too. Um, Give the students a chance to write about the content and embed some like like content-specific vocabulary into like some word banks, some sentence frames. So give kids those tools so that way they can have something to hold as they're, you know, as they're writing, as, as they're kind of trying to get their thoughts on paper. Wait time and think time is so powerful. And I think that's one of the most, like we say it, we're like, yeah, we need think time. Yeah, we need wait time. But that's for me too. Like I always say I have to teach with a like prop in my hand because I'm awful at wait time. I'm like, I want to hop in and I want to support and I want to serve. And so I just need to like give myself those reminders. Sometimes I'll, I'll stop and like watch the clock and I'll, you know, watch the, the seconds tick by, but sometimes I'll ask a question and I'll hold like a water bottle in my hand that doesn't have a straw. And so I'll like to slowly unscrew the cap and like be really intentional about moving slow. And then I'll take a sip And then maybe I'll take another sip and then I'll slowly put the cap back on and then I'll turn and ask, you know, ask for, you know, volunteers. But I have to give myself those reminders, too. And like this is my jam, right? Serving serving our multilingual students is my jam. And I still struggle with that wait time. So that's like big impact. It's a small move, but has a big impact. Mm. So, again, people. You know. I hope y'all, we're going to see how where this goes. But so many of us, you know, we're on the, the conference circuit and we're see, either we're presenting or we're seeing other people present. And then again, you have those who, what they do is SEL. What some people do is they do STEM. Uh, other people do blended learning. Uh, other people do DEI and other things. And so, you know, whether it's you call it a calling, a lane or something that that pulls to you that says you have to speak about this. You have to talk about this. You have to write about this because you are so compelled to do so. What is your ministry? So I think I love this question and I love that you use the word ministry because it's about that outreach and that connection and pulling people in. So I, I love that you use that word. Um but I think for me, there's there's several, but they all kind of fall under the umbrella of, of uh, serving multilingual students and families. Um, but one, I think, is language justice and, and language elevation um, and making sure that our schools and our classrooms um, feel like linguistically safe spaces for everybody that walks into the school, whether they're monolingual or multilingual. Um, I think that... Um, because if we look at like national statistics of like today's educator, most of them are monolingual. Um, and most of our schools would, would identify themselves as monolingual because their staff is monolingual, not because their kids are. Um, and so I think that if we can capture 
all of the languages spoken in our communities and lift those up and make them audible and visible on the walls of our school. Like if I'm walking down a hallway, I should be hearing all of the languages that exist right outside the school walls. I should hear that inside the school walls too. I should see multiple languages represented on the walls and anchor charts and all of these different things. I should walk in.